Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And one of our great desires as we begin December, can you believe it? We're already in December. And as we've just reflected on and lit now one of the candles of the Advent wreath, is to explain well what it is that we do in these particular traditions. The Advent wreath has often, at least for a number of years, been a part of our church services in December. It is a tradition that goes back hundreds of years, many generations of people, to help them. Because like most of us, they recognized that oftentimes the most important things in life are easy to forget, or you can go through the motions very easily. And so we develop ways to reflect on and rehearse the things that are the most central to our faith. In that way, this wreath, which represents life, never-ending circle, has candles around it, culminating in the lighting of the Christ candle at Christmas time. This morning, the passages that were just read are what we're going to reflect on as we consider Jeremiah and Isaiah, and the theme for this candle this particular week is hope. Hope is the theme that we are given concerning the coming of Christ, a hope that is sturdy and strong, a hope that both looks back and looks forward. So what I would like to do is to take a moment and pray. I want to pray some of the things that are found in Jeremiah 33 and Isaiah chapter 2, and then we're going to reflect together on these passages. What I want to make the case is, is that hope, as a sort of faith attached to the promises of faith, the action, the grittiness of our faith, that this hope is what holds things together. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, I ask that this morning, as we have sung songs concerning the miracle of the Incarnation, as we have turned our attention now in these coming weeks to rehearse, to think on the fact that you have come in the flesh, I ask that you would make it new again. I thank you that you know us well, better than we know ourselves this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, take what we have offered, our praying and our singing, our being together even. Take these things and may we be marked by the fruit of the Spirit as we think and pray and sing, not our own spirits. We pray for relief from suffering. We ask for hope for the downtrodden. We pray for encouragement together now as we consider Christmas, Christ who has come and will come again. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to make the point, or I'm going to try to make the point over the next number of moments together, that what Jeremiah is giving to Israel is a demonstration of a kind of thinking, a kind of way of being that ought to be part and parcel to the Christian life. So there is a way to do Christmas as a Christian. Not only Jeremiah, but Isaiah. So I'm going to walk through the passages to make sure that we understand what is happening. Some of this language is obscure. Some of it is perhaps old. You see it as traditional. And I want to make sure that we understand what is being given here, or promised in Jeremiah and Isaiah 2. And then I'm going to make two big claims. I'm going to make two big claims. One of them is that hope is strong and holds things together because it's grounded in present reality. We're going to talk about how hope is not an obfuscation. It's not Pollyannish dreaming, but hope is in fact very honest about present reality. That's going to be one reason that it's strong and holds things together. And then second, we're going to see that hope is a kind of gritty. I used to use Chuck Norris as an example, like for a strong grip. Do you guys know Chuck Norris? Have you heard of him before? So 
hope has a grittiness, a tight grip on promises of the future, such a grip on it that it brings that reality down into our present. So that's going to be the points that we make. But in order to get there, to get this idea in our heads that hope holds things together, I want to ask you a question. This could be a good icebreaker. Maybe you're out on one of those first dates. It's awkward. You don't know what to do. Let me tell you, if you really want to wow them, you just start like this. You just take your sip of coffee, you sit away, and then very thoughtfully you lean in, you say, so who are a couple of your favorite theoretical physicists? You know what I mean? It'll just slay. It's just perfect. You just start with that one and you just know that everything's going uphill from there. Now, partly I say that tongue in cheek, of course, because most people would not know a single scientist, let alone try to make a list of some of their favorites. If you said Einstein, that would be totally fine. Not only was he brilliant and had things that you hear about in elementary school, but he had great hair. But I'm going to bring to your mind someone else who I have liked. I cannot speak for this MIT and Princeton-trained theoretical physicist too much as far as his work. I know that he won a Nobel Prize. I'm not even sure exactly if he is one of the best in the field. I just know that he's memorable for a couple of reasons. One, he lectured on physics in a way that was understandable. Second, it was on YouTube. So therefore, I knew about him. But let me tell you one thing that I love about Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman was a physicist who taught, lectured, studied, wrote, again, I mentioned, won a Nobel Prize. One of the things that's so fascinating about him and the little clips that you can watch concerning him is that not only did he have a grasp of these things, but he was able to communicate them in a way that often made you not only understand, but delighted. And I rarely would imagine or think about someone speaking about the deepest or the most insane ways that physics work, the way that molecules and atom attract and propel one another, and at the same time think of them as having a great time. But if you watch Mr. Feynman describe these things, he has a constant smile on his face. You can tell that he's just giddy. You get the impression that when he's describing something that he has spent hours in his office alone, like fist pumping over the way that he saw something very small, but very clearly. I'll give you an example. He has a, a series of lectures where he describes the way that things hold together. You see where we're going. How they hold together, the way that Molecules and atoms have a way of wanting to stay together once they are together. He describes the force involved in trying to bend something like steel. And maybe you paid attention with Cybertruck that just came out. They have this massive steel press. And one of the things that has to happen when you press steel like that is you have to overbend it. You actually have to overbend the thing because built in to this substance itself is a desire to want to go back. There's something holding it, pressing it. It's as though the atoms are creaking and saying, no, don't pull us apart. So you have to overbend. And to watch Mr. Feynman describe this, you can just see him happy as he just explains the way these things function. And then he moves on to the great and difficult and amazing theoretical physicistish work of rubber bands. And I watched him describe the way that rubber bands work. And he says, you know what's so interesting about rubber bands is they're working on a totally different force. 
There's a string of molecules through the middle of the rubber band, and the thing that keeps it together and tight is a constant bombardment of these atoms hitting it from the outside. And it actually creates heat the way that it holds together, and it'll loosen and be less tense if it's cold. And there's a couple of things that I love about this. One, it teaches me in a way that I think I might partially kind of sort of understand what you're saying. That's a help in a teacher. But more than that, I just can't help but smile at the way that he loves this stuff. What he's describing is how things hold together. Now, I'm going to pause and I'm going to explicitly say that I am not going to tell you that the hope of Christmas is like a magnet, which is another one of Feynman's discussions. It is not like a steel press. It is not exactly like a rubber band. I'm not here for an allegory or even a nice little parable. I'm simply using it to say that there is something in the way that Mr. Feynman delights in how things hold together that I think is applicable for us and the kind of spirit that we want to have when we describe the hope of Christmas. There is something about this candle. Why do we light hope at the outset? We light hope at the outset of the Advent season because our experience personally and the experience of God's people down through the ages has shown us that hope is vital, absolutely essential to the holding together of life and all the promises given to us in Christ. So for the morning, we are going to learn as we consider hope. Maybe I would start by asking simple questions like this. What are you hoping for? I think that fundamentally, everyone has to get up in the morning. They have to come to a church on a Sunday. They have to go and provide a food for their family. They have to go to work. They have to continue on in the world. And all of us are hoping for something. What, what are you hoping for? And then maybe there's subcategories in this area of life. What are you actually hoping for? What do you think is going to happen? You see, this question is not inconsequential. It's vital to hold life together. One of the first great things about hope, and this is the the point we want to make as we consider Jeremiah and Isaiah chapter 2, is that hope is ruthlessly grounded in present reality. Christians, I think, or maybe Christianity as a whole, often gets a bad rap. If you invite someone into faith, they might think, oh, you mean you want me to ignore all the reason in the world? You want me to ignore the facts? You want me to just be pie in the sky and maybe head in the ground about all all the things that are difficult? I learned in the first service that ostriches don't actually stick their head in the ground, apparently, which now I'm offended because my whole childhood was based on this fact. So ostriches don't actually stick their head in the ground, but oftentimes faith, Christianity, maybe even the Christmas season as a whole can often be sort of chided by the cynical as a, a group project in ignoring the realities of life. But what we're going to find as we look at Jeremiah and Isaiah is that in fact, hope is sturdy because it refuses to ignore reality. It is ruthlessly grounded there. Jeremiah 33. Let's just make sure we understand what's going on. By the 33rd chapter of Jeremiah, he has been prophesying for a long, long time. His ministry, in fact, is years and years 
stretches into decades, and it is almost entirely fruitless. In fact, Jeremiah exists as a prophet because things are not going well in Israel. He wants them to actually confess and to admit how they are not everything that they thought they would be. So the 14th verse of Jeremiah 33, which again, when we come to seasons like this, we we pull out little sections. You could pick many of them. But you pull out, and it says this in the 14th verse, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Well, what's at the outset of that? What's behind? What's the assumption of the days are coming? Well, the assumption behind it is, but they're not now. So he's imagining a days that are coming, but the question might be, uh, so that admits that they're not now. And then he goes on and he uses words like this, when I will fulfill. So it's not fulfilled. Later, in those days, in verse 15, but not yet these days, at that time I will. Okay, so you're saying you will, but now it's not. He shall execute justice. So you're telling me that there's not now. There shall be righteousness in the land. Okay, I'm glad you said that because right now there's a whole lot of not unrighteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, he says in verse 16. Well, you know what it takes to acknowledge those words is to say, but right now we don't feel saved. Right now we're lost, we're trapped, we're in a pit, we have enemies on all sides. Jerusalem will dwell securely. What does that admit by this promise? Well, hope starts by admitting that it is not safe. It is not secure. Isaiah is similar. So I'm making the point here that that Jeremiah is a failed prophet describing a wake-up call to a nation that refuses to admit how bad things are. And all of his promises are based on admitting that those things are lacking now. Isaiah is similar. Again, this is one of many prophecies through Isaiah in the second chapter. He says, it shall come to pass in verse 2. This is what was just read. Kevin read Jeremiah 33. As Natalie read Isaiah 2, same thing found. It shall come to pass in the latter days. What is the assumption there? Uh, Right now is not those latter days. All the phrasing, shall be established, shall be lifted up, shall flow to it. Many people shall come. The idea here is to admit that they are not doing that now. The mountain of the house of the Lord is not established. It's not lifted up. The nations are not flowing to it. They're running away from it. The peoples are not coming. They're rejecting. I think the lesson that we're learning here, the point that might be out, and the reason that hope is so helpful to people who are suffering and in difficult circumstances is because it does not ignore present reality. In fact, it is the most honest about it. Those who hope ought to be the people who are willing to admit, sometimes in the most stark contrast, what is lacking. I think that Scripture invites you, invites you to admit what is lacking, to admit what is lost, to admit admit what is being grieved. And I would say that this is not in opposition to hope, but in fact is the bubbling ground, the firm foundation of anyone who will actually hope. So there are promises in Scripture, right? It says, a rescue is coming. You know who does not care about a rescue? Someone who thinks they're safe. 
The Bible describes a cure is coming. You know who doesn't care about a cure? Someone who says, I'm healthy. It's fine. It's perfect. Scripture says, bread and water are coming. You know who doesn't care about endless bread and water? Someone who's full. Hope grounds itself in a present reality which is often full of lack and difficulty and suffering. It admits that there is a future hope needed and so it is willing to be honest about the here and now. And my assertion is that the reason that Christians down through the ages, these hundreds and hundreds of years, these generations that have taught us to light a hope candle first, I believe that they have tapped into a common experience of the people of God down through the ages. And that is is that those Christians who are most willing to admit and to cast themselves full burdens onto God are those who now have the established ground to have a bubbling hope that is strong and gritty. I'm going to give you a few more examples. The experience of God's people shows that hope does not ignore reality, but in fact brings it to the surface. I'm going to give you an example. Here's what I would bring for exhibit, you know, if Jeremiah's exhibit A and B, here's exhibit C. How about all of the Psalms? Have you ever noticed in the Psalms that all the things that are amazing, the passages that are beautiful, the stuff that gets cross-stitched, right? Just imagine it. You could probably say it. Things like, the Lord is a refuge, a present help in time of trouble. Or I would have despaired if I had not believed that I would see the Lord in the land of the living. These are the things that when your grandma gives you the pillow, they're cross-stitched right on there. They're all the most beautiful passages. But you know what they're grounded in? Have you ever noticed this? That the first half of those psalms often are the most emo, crazy, sad songs of all time? Just before, you know what doesn't get cross-stitched? When the guy says, oh, my bones are breaking and God's gone and he doesn't listen and I might as well be dead. In fact, I wish I was. So what is it about hope that admits things like that? Can you imagine someone coming in and saying to the psalmist, uh, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to produce this album for you, David. I promise I am. You're a talented musician. It's just so great. Here's the thing, though. Um, that Hopeful stuff at the end, I think that's going to really sell. I think that's going to be really good. But this first part, um, I don't know. And I know what I think he might say? I think he might say, well, there's no sense in hoping. There's no sense in waiting. There's no sense in longing if you haven't been honest about the present circumstance. Hope is strong because it admits the obvious. Far from being an ostrich into the ground, Christianity is the one place where we actually dare to say the things that are more true than anyone else might dare to say. In other words, hope starts by a phrase something like this, oh, it's worse than you think. We're hopeless. So the Psalms sing these songs because they're built on the gritty reality of the grounded present. And what I would invite you to, maybe this seems odd, doesn't make a good Christmas card, perhaps the invitation of hope candle being lit at the beginning of Advent season is to say, hey, as we start things off, let's remember and rehearse just how amazing it is to have a Savior. 
And when was the last time you really wrote down or thought or confessed to someone or prayed through it and said, you know, here's all the stuff that I just am having a difficult time with. I really need to be saved. I really need to be rescued. I feel trapped. I feel discouraged. There's a proverb that says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. You might say to yourself, here's where I have some heart sickness over the realities of life. And what I might say to you is, is that by pretending and waiting to get yourself cleaned up or getting in a better state of mind before you bring yourself to God, you may be cutting yourself off at the knees before you get started. Hope begins by admitting exactly what is real and oftentimes what is lacking right now. So for Jeremiah's sake, his whole ministry was to tell them, you're lacking the righteousness you need. There's no justice in the land. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Israel, this is worse than you think. And that prepared them and taught them to wait for a Savior. So I think that as an application, something that we're being taught, what does it mean to begin to have these ideas or to walk as a Christian should walk in Advent? Well, the first thing to say is, let's make it a season of honesty about the things that we lack. What are you grieving? What are you anxious over? It's not going to betray the Jesus who has come. Jesus, who came to be near, wants to draw near in all of your need. Hope is strong and powerful and worth celebrating because it does not lie. And at the end of the day, no one is attracted to a religion that lies. God, who is the God of hope, that's what Romans 15 tells us, that he's the God of hope itself. God is a truth teller. He can't commend something that is in opposition to his main character. So for us to hope, it must also be starkly honest. So let's start there. Let's dare to look backward at what we've experienced, to look now in the present to the things that are not yet here, and admit them. Hope does not hide It tells the truth. And that is exactly the medicine that a soul needs to prepare it for the fulfillment of hope, the second part of hope. The thing that makes it so strong is that it gritty, Chuck Norris-y kind of way grasps into the future to promises in such a way that it brings them here to the present. That's what hope does. And I want to say that this is a two-sided thing. Don't get stuck in one way or the other. Some people who are realists, or maybe who have gone through some suffering, you may have gotten happy about that first part. You say to yourself, yep, I've been saying this all along. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It's about time these people said it. And maybe you get stuck there. Hope doesn't just mean you're a naysayer, a woe is me. Remember, the Psalms have movement. The song just doesn't go over and over and over again on its sadness and lack. But it's the need created by the lack that grasps for something better. So Psalm 33, for instance. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. It finds a place to put its hope in the steadfast love 
of the Lord. Hope begins with honesty about the present reality, but moves to future promises. The psalmist can sing and say, I can wait because the Lord has promised to be a refuge and a help. I can wait because there is gladness and there is joy in the presence of the Lord. I can wait because God is holy. He does all things perfectly and well. I can wait because the Lord is steadfast. He's not fickle. He's not going to change his opinion so we can hope in him. Hope in the same way, remember, as doggedly as you are willing to be honest about the present reality, hope is about rehearsing and with a dogged determination saying, but there is something true and better and right coming in Christ. So we look to the future. I might at this point say as well that hope is a kind of, um, it's kind of a hard to nail down word. It's like a fluttering butterfly that's difficult to, I shouldn't say pin down, you know, not pin the butterfly. Does that kill the butterfly? Why is that a thing? We pin butterflies? So it's a, it's a fluttering thing. Maybe where I'll end that. I'm sorry, my mind fluttered for a minute there. And I think that that's okay. Like, what's the difference between hope and faith? Well, there's probably distinctions. Hope seems to be faith set on the promises that faith secures. I mean, there's some differences. The Bible itself is often trying to grasp at these things. There's 10 different Hebrew words that are translated somewhere in the realm of hope. Greek has a number of words, too, that are translated differently. So they're all sort of connected. It doesn't mean that you have to have firm definitions here. The idea simply means this. Hope is what holds you connected to a future that you do not yet have. So you'd say, well, I think of that as faith. I think that's good. That's okay. Hope seems to be a little bit like faith with an imagination for the promises that faith will bring. It is what holds you and connects you from the reality of the present, the wrongs of the past, to future promises. I'm going to give you an example from Lamentations chapter 3. Again, we should pause for a moment and think about how interesting it is that the Bible has a whole book called Lamentations. What kind of book is it? Well, it's a hopeful book. I'm going to read verse 19 and 20. So I want you to note the honesty, kind of like the Psalms. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I'm going to pause there and I'm going to say, if you're just introduced to Lamentations 3 for the first time, do you have any expectation whatsoever that this is going to turn into one of the most hopeful passages in all of the Bible? Do you have your cross stitch even ready at this point? Do you know where the needles are? Look at how grim this is. This is the prayer that says, remember my affliction and my wanderings. I'm listless and I'm hurting. He says, the wormwood and the gall. And he wants the Lord to remember this because he says in verse 20, my soul continually remembers it. I'm obsessed and anxious. I'm in an endless cycle of my own suffering. Maybe you've been there. And so much so that my soul is bowed down within me. That's where this Lamentations passage starts. Well, that's that honest grounding in reality. But then look what hope does. In verse 21, it turns the corner. 
And he, he imagines, he forces himself to remember a future promise. And he says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is, the, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. What a turnaround. You see, a hopeful person is not just cynically honest about the present, but also in a gritty kind of insistent way, a ruthless way, says, I'm going to grasp onto a better future. He says, this I call to mind and I have hope. I know who God is and I know what he's promised. So I'm going to think on these things. I am hungry right now and what I taste is gall and wormwood. But the Lord is a portion, a fulfillment, a satisfaction. I'm waiting right now. But I know that the Lord is good to those who wait. So waiting is good. I'm seeking right now. But there is goodness for the soul that seeks. You see, hope is faith with enough imagination to think about the situation being differently. So I started out by saying, this Christmas season, maybe it's worth being honest about the things that you lack. Maybe write them out. Say, my relationship is in shambles. Maybe you'd say, my work life is a stress fest. Maybe you say, my kids are just not following directions. Maybe you say, my level of fulfillment in friendship is not what I wished it would be. Maybe you say, I am grieving the loss of a loved one, a diagnosis of cancer. And, so as much as I would encourage you that, let's let this month, this season, be a time like the Lamentations passage. I guess I should pull the Bible. That's just on my paper. Like the Lamentations passage, you also say, but let me write out the things that are true, the things that are more true, so that I could grasp onto something. Maybe you allow the Spirit of God to help you imagine, and maybe I could just ask you like this, what are you hoping for? What if there were forgiveness? What if there were reconciliation? What if there was a change of spirit or mind or heart in the workplace? What if the toil had joy underneath it? What if friendships shifted from seeking and striving and awkwardness to ease and laughter and joy? What if a sense of being lost and gone felt like belonging? What if that one area of work that you just keep banging your head against, what if there were reward and provision and success? What if the Spirit of God did in your children's minds and hearts what you could not do to this point? You see, hope says God is good and has promised things. Now, we should be careful to note that we leave the results up to him, and he might not change every circumstance in your timing at the moment. But at the end of the day, it is a good exercise to hope in a God who promises goodness to those who follow him. You're going to say to yourself, 
What if I was free from this besetting sin? What if it wasn't so much of a struggle? What if I believed and the doubts were gone? Hope refuses to only remember in one direction. This kind of hope, Advent hope, is such a blessing to the world, it's attractive to the world, because it does not lie, it's honest about the present, but more than that, it does not lie about the future. Hope dares to remember in both directions. It actively rehearses the promises of God. And once again, we do what God's people have always done. In one sense, we look back and read Jeremiah and Isaiah, and we say, oh, they have no idea. I just want to go back, and I just want to high-five Jeremiah and say, it's, it's, it's here. Jesus has come. I want to tell him that all that you prophesied, there's the, those sweet older folks. And it's Anna and Simeon in, in Luke's story of the gospel. They're around the temple. And when Jesus is described as coming, they just rush up and they, they come out in like song and they're quoting the scriptures and they just cannot believe its fulfillment has happened. You see, God's people have been taught to wait for the promises. And in the same way, though Jesus has come in the flesh, he also promises those who follow him that he will come again. There is coming a day when we will have all the joy to see every promise fulfilled. There's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, when every injustice will be undone, when all the suffering will be gone, every bit of striving, exhaustion, broken down bodies, conflict in relationships, gone. There is coming a day when the Lord will descend from the clouds, when all who are dead will rise with him to rule and to reign, when there will be perfect justice raining down. This is the hope of the Christian now. And even as I say it, I recognize that it's not yet. But we won't stop grasping. We dare to remember these promises. This kind of rehearsing is every bit part of Christmas as rehearsing for choirs, which there'll be one here tonight, 6.30, Side note, it's every bit as meaningful as rehearsing for a play or for a presentation at work. The task over the next number of of weeks is to hope. Hope. Hope that what God has said will come true. Remember these things so that they mark your life. To have anything less, to not have hope to offer to the world, is to miss what it is that we're celebrating. Let's pray.